have you been seeing all these shortages? It feels like there's a shortage of everything. Yes. There's a shortage on baby formula. There's a shortage on tampons. I saw something about a olive oil shortage. Olive oil? Which is creeping very close to there be a shortage of my patients. <laughs> I am very <laughs> tired of all of these shortages because as soon as something, there's not enough of something, that means people are going to start panicking. We saw that in the pandemic when there was a shortage of toilet paper and hand sanitizer and Clorox wipes. And one thing that has come across our radar but isn't really that new is the semiconductor chip shortage. Yes. And I feel like Christopher Mims gave us a little bit of a heads up, like, hey, some of these things are happening, but it's getting out of control now. I want to know why we're still dealing with this shortage and what's next? What are we going to do about it? What's the plan? I'm Titi. And I'm Zakia. And from Spotify, this is Dope Labs. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Dope Labs, a weekly podcast that mixes hardcore science, pop culture, and a healthy dose of friendship. So like we just said, there's been a lot of shortages, one being the chip shortage, but the chip shortage is a little bit more complicated, changing a lot, I guess. Whether or not there is a shortage, it depends on what you type into Google, it seems. Like in some countries, they got a lot of chips, but in the U.S., we might not have enough. At some points, you know, there's not enough chips, and then at another point, you got too much dip on your chip. (laughs) This week, we're talking all about computer chips, or specifically semiconductor chips. These tiny pieces of equipment that are in every computing device out there. They're vital to how our world runs, and right now, there's a major shortage. We wanted to know more about what's caused a chip shortage, how it's affecting our lives, and what people are doing about it. Let's get into the recitation. So what do we know? Chips, chips, chips everywhere. (laughs) They're in everything. Literally, they're in everything. Any device that operates on its own without you having to crank it, it has a semiconductor chip inside of it. And so when you stop and think about that, almost everything except for like a table, and some of these tables have chips in them too. My desk is going up and down. It probably has a chip. It does have a chip. They're in our refrigerators. They're in our cars. They're in military equipment. Almost everything you touch has a chip in it. We know that there's a shortage and it's having an effect on the economy. So what do we want to know? 
where are we in the shortage? Because I thought we had reached the heights of the shortage mm-hmm. in 2020. Right. Then in 2021, we went over what I thought the high was. And so here we are now. The shortiest of shortages. Okay. <laughs> yes. I thought shortage meant we got a little bit. Y'all still saying shortage. How we still only got a little bit? What's happening? And what is anybody doing about it? What are manufacturers doing about it? What kind of policy is around hopefully relieving some of the pressures here? What's going on? I think something that would be important for people to understand is the importance of semiconductor chips. So how they work, why they're so important, and why we should be worried about it. Let's jump into the dissection. Our guest for today's lab is Al Thompson. I'm Al Thompson. I'm the Vice President of U.S. and Canadian Government Affairs at Intel. Intel is one of the major players in the semiconductor chip industry. And because these chips are in so many things that we rely on, that industry is shaping our lives. Al broke down what a chip is. It's a complex device that forms the brains of anything that involves computing. That includes phones, medical devices, cars. More and more modern appliances have chips. And most of those chips are made in Taiwan, South Korea, and China. It's one of the most complex products manufactured in the world. They're small as a fingernail, they're flat, but on the surface, you generally have three-dimensional structures that can include up to 30 layers of different circuitry on them. So what's a chip made of? The basis for every chip is that it's built on a piece of silicon. And then on each piece of silicon, there are these things called transistors. And transistors are what the device uses to function. It has switches and amplifiers and things like that. Different chips have different responsibilities. So not all chips are created equal. Some are used for storing data. So if you think about your flash drive, those chips store data so you can access it whenever you want to. Some chips um, are called microprocessors. So they perform most of a computer's calculating functions. You know, back in the day, chips weren't what we know chips to be now, where you can have thin laptops, AirPods that don't have a cord and Mm. all these different things. 50 years ago, they would take up entire rooms. Like when you're talking about the first computer, it took up an entire room. And even things like, oh, you know how we say, oh, if there's a bug in my computer. Back then, it was literal bugs. That's where we get the terminology from. The first computer what? bug was a moth inside of this <laughs> inside of this computer that took up a whole room. Everything is so thin and so small because there have been so many advances in chip technology. The microprocessor was first created well over 50 years ago. But, you know, now the technology has evolved in terms of the manufacturing process where you can stack different components on top of each other, even though the surface of the chip itself is still pretty thin. So there's all of these pathways for electricity to move around the chip and perform different functions. And Al said the most sophisticated chips have hundreds of millions or billions of these circuitries on them and that are interconnected by fine wires and copper. So on that small little piece of equipment, you have the ability to do everything from either store information, and those are called memory chips, or actually compute and make decisions. We call those logic chips. So chips have been getting smaller and smaller, but Mm -hmm. their capabilities are increasing. To understand how that's happened, we need to understand how the chip has kind of evolved. The evolution of the semiconductor chip 
is defined by a prediction that was actually made in 1965 by one of the co-founders of Intel, Gordon Moore. And the prediction is called Moore's Law. It says that the number of transistors on a semiconductor chip will double every two years. If you have a semiconductor chip and there's 10 transistors on it, two years from then, there'll be 20. And two years from then, there'll be 40. Two years from then, there'll be 80. And so on and so forth. And that has continued to this point. What Moore's Law has done is has allowed chips to basically evolve and be able to go from what used to be very large computer mainframes to your iPhone. And it's a continuing process that allows us to try to get more transistors on a chip that makes a chip more energy efficient, yet powerful from a computing standpoint, but making the size smaller all at the same time. I think the common misconception when people mm-hmm. hear computing is to think only about computers. Mm-hmm. But like you said earlier, chips are in everything. Your refrigerator, your car. For example, brand new cars now are about 4% chip. That's a lot. It's not just, oh, there's one chip. If you've had car problems, you know about the chips. Okay? <laughs> and it's only expected to continue to increase. There's really no aspect of our lives that's becoming less digital if you think about it. Everything is becoming more and more digitized, like as we see advancement in any technology. Now I can't even think of something that doesn't have a chip, truly. Your glass is the only thing I've seen without a chip, but those about to start clipping over. Google Glass and everything like that. Mm-hmm. I'm ready for that. My friend want to be a... I want to be a robot. So Put the bad. chips in me. Put it in me. That's what I want. <laughs> is that the goal for everything, to be chip-based? I feel like that's possible and that is what we're creeping towards. But what is the ultimate goal? So we asked Al and he said, while COVID accelerated digitization in a lot of ways, it's great because it makes a lot of things more accessible for a lot more people. Technology allows people to have flexibility they didn't have 20 years ago. I grew up in the 80s. There was no cell phone. We had a landline. Did I have a computer system? Yeah, but it was huge. There was no such thing as putting an infotainment system in your automobile. The infotainment system was the radio based on the antenna signal that you got when you drove. So think about all the things that we're able to do now due to the improvement that the semiconductors made on everyday life. There was no such thing as telehealth when I was a kid. The ability to actually do your doctor's appointment on a computer screen. And so when I say everything's going more digital, it's more the fact that technology is enabling us to do things now in ways we couldn't do 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. Yeah, these things are a really huge part of our lives. Personally, at work, just moving around in public spaces. But how has the shortage affected those areas of our lives? Well, because so much of our life has become digitized, the chip shortage has kind of had waves of effects. So if you think back, TT, Mm -hmm. when people were saying they couldn't get cars or it was taking so long to get laptops early in the pandemic. Yeah. Chip shortage. But now it just feels like there's a shortage of everything, which could be related to the chip shortage. So we've touched on some of the factors in the chip shortage, but what we really need to understand is how this even started. Al said it's all about supply and demand. So I would say at the big picture, high increased demand, capacity that hadn't increased, and then other components of the supply chain had their own set of unique challenges which made it harder to produce those components. All of those things happening at the same time is what led to the chip shortage that we face today. Just like we've highlighted in a lot of other labs, when COVID hit, it changed 
everything. And that is true for this as well. A lot of things move to digital platforms in a really short amount of time. Al said the supply chain shortages meant that there was about 5% more demand than manufacturers could supply. But the pandemic took that and pushed it to 20%. That is four times larger. People move so many things online, work meetings, school, Mm -hmm. and everybody needs to have a device. And then you need better routers and then you need more and more and more accessories, all of these things that were just driving demand through the roof. But manufacturers of chips didn't have the opportunity to increase output just as fast. So there's this incredible imbalance. And then on top of that, in different places, as the pandemic is ripping through the population, there's worker shortages. Then there were companies having issues with components, having trouble keeping up with the demand to make chips. Companies are dealing with this in a few different ways. Intel specifically is spending between 70 to 75 billion dollars globally to increase their ability to produce chips. But he says it takes time to do that. It takes three years to build a semiconductor fab. Three years. A semiconductor fab is a semiconductor fabrication plant. So it is a special facility with the specific purpose of making semiconductor chips. So everything that we've announced within the last year or two will not be online until 2024 to 2025. Because the scale and the size of the facilities are just so large that they take a while to build and equip. I understand they're specialized, but I also feel like people are throwing up apartment buildings and things like this. Why is that facility (laughs) taking so long? Those things are going up fast. It's like, oh, they're breaking ground. Oh, they're accepting applications for leases. (laughs) That was just last week. And everything. How did you get that water up there? (laughs) Your first step is to build the facility itself. And you're talking about something the size of four or more football fields. So you're building out that actual physical structure. The next component comes, you have to equip it. So all of that floor space generally has very sophisticated and large pieces of equipment that either do things from using light to essentially print the circuitry pattern on a wafer. That includes the machines that move the wafers all around. There's a huge amount of equipment that actually goes into the building of the facility. And beyond just the physical facility, you need people in the facilities to actually do the work putting these chips together. And then while you're also doing that, you're hiring the workforce to be able to come in and manage it. That workforce includes significant amount of engineering talent at the bachelor, master's and Ph.D. level as well. And companies are trying to find different ways to find workers because you need a lot of different skill sets to make more chips. We have to have construction workers and those construction workers have to be specialized welders and electricians to actually build the facilities. Then if we get there, we have to be able to staff them. Some of those workers could be ensuring that engineering talent in the United States, most of which come from foreign countries. If those folks want to work in the U.S. as engineers at our companies, we should hopefully have an immigration system that allows them to do that. That's such a great point. Mm-hmm. You need people. I think a lot of folks, when they think about semiconductor fabrication, mm-hmm. if they're thinking about it, they're thinking about machines, make more machines. But you need talented individuals to do that work. We're going to take a quick break. But after the break, we're going to get into the policy behind chip manufacturing.
we're back. And next week, we're talking all about the digital divide with Nicole Turner Lee. We're going to talk all about who has access to internet, who doesn't, and how the gap disproportionately affects low-income people and people of color. We've been talking with Al Thompson, the Vice President of U.S. and Canadian Government Affairs at Intel. So far, we've learned what a chip is, what it's made of, and how basically everything in our lives is becoming more and more digitized, which means more chips. Now we want to talk about the cost difference between manufacturing in the U.S. and in countries like China, Taiwan, South Korea, and Japan, where we know they're doing a lot of chip fabrication. This means we kind of have to understand the history of chip making and some of the policy that's around it. In 1990, the United States made around 37% of the semiconductor chips in the world. Fast forward to 2022, and we now make around 12%. Europe also saw a similar shift from making 44% of the semiconductor chips to now only 9%. So 30 years ago, close to 80% of the world's semiconductors were manufactured in the United States and Europe, and 20% or so were manufactured in Asia. It is now completely reversed. 80% of the world's semiconductors are manufactured in Asia, divided between Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, and China. Why did that happen? That happened because foreign governments recognizing the foundational nature of semiconductors and their value created policies to attract manufacturing in those geographic locations. And the United States didn't do the same. So what China did is they made it more appealing. And the way that they did that was by creating these tax and tariff exemptions to sustain and develop its chip industry. Tariffs are for the import and export of goods. And so if there are exemptions, that means that you don't got to pay so much to import or export goods. That is very appealing. You're basically subsidizing the cost to manufacture something. If it's cheaper for me to make my chips in China, I'm making the chips in China. And so it's advantageous for China, right? Because you may say, well, why would they make such a deal? Not only are the chips being made in China, in their country, that also reduces China's reliance on chips from other countries. So they don't have to look to Taiwan or, you know, any other country to do this. We've seen this recently in India, Japan and South Korea. They've all passed tax credits and subsidies for chip makers. Recently, the European Union has been looking at finalizing its own CHIPS Act legislation, which will hold billions of dollars in funding to make up for that large drop in chip production. So that created a huge gap in the cost of operating and manufacturing in these different places. At the end of the day, there's a 30 percent cost difference between building and operating factories in Asia compared to the United States. 30 percent feels big to me. So what are we going to do to close that gap? Congress actually passed the CHIPS Act as part of the National Defense Authorization Act in 2021. The bill has around $52.5 billion in funding for the semiconductor industry. But passing isn't the end-all be-all. They haven't formally budgeted out any of that funding. In order to actually put the dollars behind the act, we need to fund the Bipartisan Innovation Act. Al is saying companies want Congress to pass that bill so that they can get the money the $52.5 billion that people said we would get in 2021 with the CHIPS Act. What the Bipartisan Innovation Act would do is eliminate that cost delta of 30%. If you take away that cost delta, it's much easier to drive investment here. 
That has two benefits, not in terms of just job creation, but it improves supply chain resiliency. Because over the last half a century, companies rewarded for the efficiency of their supply chain, not necessarily the resiliency of their supply chain. Our CEO, Pat Gelsinger, always says that we need to transition from a just-in-time delivery system to a just-in-case delivery system in supply chain. And the Bipartisan Innovation Act is designed to support industry by removing that 30% cost gap so it's much more cost competitive to build facilities in the United States. Al said the way for companies to shift to a more resilient supply chain is to go from a just-in-time manufacturing model, which is when companies create items as needed, to a just-in-case model where companies do the opposite of that, where they make enough product in advance and have it in excess. I feels like we're hitting on this distinction between efficiency and resiliency. And so when it comes to chip manufacturing, what does it actually mean? A big part of this is having a more diverse supply chain. So production doesn't stop if one part of that production process is compromised. And that's part of what this push for chip factories in the United States is about. But funding for those factories has stalled in Congress. In June, Global Wafers, a Taiwanese semiconductor maker, the third largest one in the world, said they would build a $5 billion factory in the United States. But only if the government helps pay for it. They're going to put a $12 billion plant in Phoenix to produce the most advanced chips. But the CEO, Mark Liu, said development would only move forward if the government would make up for TSMC's running cost difference between the United States and Taiwan. And although Intel had previously had plans to have a $20 billion factory in Ohio, because those funds haven't been distributed, Intel put a freeze on construction and postponed its groundbreaking ceremony, not a week, but indefinitely until Congress funds the chip hack. There are a lot of roadblocks to even starting to address this shortage. We asked Al what other ways the supply chain could look different. Instead of having a supply chain where 80% of it is concentrated in one part of the world, and of that, half that 80% is concentrated in two countries, meaning anything that would go wrong in that part of the world could lock down the supply chain. A resilient supply chain means, wait, we have robust manufacturing capacity in Europe. We have robust manufacturing capacity in the U.S. So there are no more single points of failure. What the just-in-time delivery system essentially rewarded was keeping things concentrated in low-cost areas that would allow you to manufacture cheaply, ship it, and get it just in time to where you needed to put it back on a store shelf or put it into a product so it could be shipped. And that works in terms of speed and cost. But the problem is it creates single points of failure. And if one of those points fails, you can't get the product out the door. So what happened in the auto industry? What happened in the auto industry was the chip that essentially controls your window or warms your seats or controls your power system. If there's a problem manufacturing one of those, that small chip is the reason why our new car can't move off a lot. This means more factories to produce these chips and meet a demand that has skyrocketed. So demand for chips is going to increase every year by 5% between now and the end of this decade. To meet that demand, meaning meeting people needing products that include semiconductors, capacity or the number of facilities has to expand globally by 57%. 
Al says the success of a semiconductor company is driven by the ability to invest more in Moore's law. That law that says there should be more transistors on a chip every two years. It should double so that chips can evolve and become more leading edge. These go into our iPads, our computers, our cell phones. Al said any efforts to address supply chain shortages in the future need to be a balance of chips that are already in production, so kind of mature chips, and new cutting-edge chips. The challenge and the reason why it's so hard is the chips that you need tend to be the older chips, and those are harder to maintain over time because Moore's Law requires you to kind of continue to push forward toward a more capable chip, and all of the, the resources, not necessarily in physical material, but tools and manufacturing processes, you don't have as much of that as you used to 10 to 15 years ago. So it's not necessarily the materials that are the issue in the chip shortage. It's the manufacturing technology. We need more of the older chips, but in order to stay on the leading edge with our technology, a lot of companies have invested more in modern chips. So how do you address these pitfalls? This, these right. are in direct opposition. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how does the chip industry deal with this? And then I'm curious, like, if all of this is going on and we see how it's working in other countries, why didn't our government anticipate this, TT? <laughs> you saw what other folks were doing. The government knows what everybody else is doing. Everybody knows what everybody's doing. Everybody's looking at everybody's paper. We should have been able to anticipate this and put some stuff in place. And because we didn't, now we're playing catch up. Al said that COVID changed the way the United States now approaches chips and manufacturing. He said there has to be more focus on research and development or R&D. Then there is the investment in starting materials. Right. We touched on that with Dr. Kate Butner in our previous lab about metals. There's a limited supply of various elements, metals and fossil fuels. And so the upside of doing research and development is that it can help us use things that are available locally, or at least on this side of the hemisphere. And all of that feels really important to focus on when we think about closing that chip production gap. Al said Intel spends about $15 billion a year on research and development. And that's one of the reasons why only a few companies can do that. It's because you have to invest so many resources to conduct that research. There's no getting around that. Moore's Law is incredible. Moore's Law is also expensive. One of the things that's been clear, and this is why the Innovation Act is so important, is federal pre-competitive research has kind of stayed flat. And we need to invest in these because the semiconductor shortage, we talk a lot about it in the United States, given its impact, but it's a global shortage. And the rest of the world has woken up to the fact that the companies that have semiconductor manufacturing and R&D are going to be the ones that have a large say in the direction of the global future. And so our ability to properly invest is really, really important. Investing in the chip industry is critical for the United States to remain competitive in technology. And because our lives are increasingly depending on technology, that also means meeting the higher need for chips through manufacturing them here. I think all the points that Al brought up are so important. I think one that I really want to highlight is jobs. Having these semiconductor fabrication plants in the United States and doing the production here rather than getting it from other countries not only helps us economically from a standpoint of, oh, folks will need to purchase from us, but it also creates jobs. 
for lots of Americans and immigrant people who need work. So not only will we be staying on the leading edge of technology, but also invigorating our economy from a workforce standpoint. Yeah. And it feels like it's this intersection of all these things we've talked about. You know, in a previous episode where we talked about metals, one of the things that we talked about is the geospatial distribution of different source materials and different elements. And part of this chip shortage, what we're seeing is due to the reliance of the semiconductor manufacturers on neon. Neon is primarily coming out of Ukraine. You know, we have the war between Russia and Ukraine. When that started earlier in the year, that production stopped. And so, you know, it's important to recognize that the United States and many other places have been outsourcing manufacturing for years. I just saw in a New York Times newsletter, their tech newsletter from Shira Oviday, where she talked about you know, this jumble of Mm -hmm. the chip industry. So yes, there's a shortage. In some cases, we're seeing trucks and cars that can't be completed. Their manufacturing cannot be completed because they don't have chips. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of people have seen that happen in their counties and their states where they say, oh, we're going to build this bridge or we're going to build these facilities and, you know, the money doesn't come through. And they say, oh, in five more years and 10 more years and then 10 years turns into 20 years, turns into 30 years and it almost never gets done. And what that does is not just oh, it's just sitting there, it causes a disruption. And people are counting on these things to be built because they're counting on the jobs to be available. So somebody may be holding out hope that when it opens that they will have an opportunity to get work. And if the money doesn't come through because of some government stuff that we have no control over because our Congress people are over there jibber-jabbering, I mean, we end up suffering. But just as we're seeing a shortage in the United States, in other places like South Korea, chips are piling up. You know, they're starting to see people reducing their orders. And so they have more chips than they can sell. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard to understand like how we have both a shortage and a surplus at the same time. But a lot of this also has to do with the trajectory of the economy. There Mm -hmm. feels like this looming recession. So maybe people aren't buying as much, which decreases demand. But also note that I said the surplus was in South Korea. That gets back to what we were saying earlier in this episode about incentivizing production here in the United States. Right. And when we think about the production and manufacturing, the U.S. is playing catch up right now. That's basically Mm -hmm. what Al told us. And it's going to take a long time for the U.S. to catch up to some of these other Asia-based companies. So they'll likely dominate manufacturing for the foreseeable future. And even if U.S. manufacturing increases, one natural disaster, global pandemic can, (laughs) as we've seen, can disrupt the whole thing. All right, it's time for one thing. What's your one thing this week, Z? My one thing I already mentioned very briefly in the conclusion, but it is the On Tech newsletter from the New York Times with Shira Overday. I like getting this newsletter and just getting an overview of what's going on. So the latest issue told me about the chip shortage and the chip surplus. It helped me get a better Mm -hmm, understanding mm -hmm. of what was going on in addition to our interview with Al. But also it told me about some folks selling personal data in China, Twitter suing the Indian government, how Apple's been, you know, pretty tight-lipped on chips, especially with their M1 processor or M2 processor that they have out with their technology. It just gives me everything, and I like it. 
<laughs> that sounds perfect <laughs> for my friend. <laughs> I want to know it all. What's your <laughs> one thing, TT? My one thing this week is something that came across my Instagram feed, and it was research out of Northwestern. So they said May 25th, they were able to develop the smallest ever remote-controlled robot. And it looks like a little tiny crab. It's about a half a millimeter wide, which a half a millimeter is about the size of the tip of a pen. And so it's really, really cool to see that they were able to make something so tiny. And so when you think of applications for something like this, because, I'm, you know, first thing is, what do we need with that small robot? But <laughs> you think about some tasks that may need to be done in very, very tight spaces. If you can get this robot to do some of the things you want it to do, it's the perfect size. And so mm -hmm. this is a really brilliant first step in the right direction to the miniaturization, like we talked about in this episode with chips, of all this technology. Wow. That's it for Lab 71. What did you think? Did you learn something new about the chip shortage? Do you think we're going to get the funding <laughs> for, the, <laughs> for those factories to be built? I have questions. Ooh, call wee. us at 202-567-7028 and tell us what you thought. Also, you can call us and give us an idea for a lab you think we should do this semester. Remember, call or text 202-567-7028. And don't forget that there is so much more to dig into on our website. There'll be a cheat sheet for today's lab, additional links and resources in the show notes. Plus, you can sign up for our newsletter. Check it out at dopelabspodcast.com. Special thanks to today's guest expert, Al Thompson. You can find him on Twitter at AT983. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at dopelabspodcast. TT's on Twitter and Instagram at dr underscore T-S-H-O. And you can find Zakia at Z said so. Dope Labs is a Spotify original production from Mega Own Media Group. Our producers are Jenny Radelet Mask and Lydia Smith of Wave Runner Studios. Editing and scoring by Rob Smirciak and Griffin Jennings. Mixing by Hannes Brown. Original music composed and produced by Taka Yasuzawa and Alex Sugiura. From Spotify, creative producer Miguel Contreras. Special thanks to Shirley Ramos, Jess Borison, Yasmin Afifi, Kamu Elolia. Teal Kratke, and Brian Marquis. Executive producers from Mega O Media Group are us, T.T. Shodia and Zakia Watley. <laughs>